Our scripture from today is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 25. You can read along with me in your Bibles or on your screen. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly, from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Jimmy, left arm, I'm planning on coming down to the floor for communion. You probably picked up on that. Try to throw the uh, sound crew a couple of curveballs here and there on a Sunday. I don't actually ever do it on purpose. And they roll with it so well. Sound and video crew. Isabel, a couple weeks ago, Dan Spagnese sat right there on the floor to listen to my sermon. It was very awkward. Perhaps you noticed again in the text that Peter is really fond of reminding us um, that we're exiles. Oops. He likes to remind us of this, and exiles in the first century would be an in-between peoples. So they were neither considered full citizens, nor were they um, slaves. So he's going to, Peter and Paul both talk about Christians as uh, the word is more like bondservants. But he loves to remind us of this. He loves to remind us that as Christians, our first allegiance is to Jesus, which means we're never full citizens of any nation here on earth. This humbles us. And actually, a Christian exile, or sojourner is another word for it, senses in their exile the freedom to be for the people and the nation and the vocation they're called to without needing to worship it. It's an interesting irony that uh, patriotism is actually enhanced if it's not our first allegiance. This particular July 4th, I have enjoyed more so than years past reading what people have said about July 4th because there's a tension in it and a beautiful hope for continue for the, that the ideal of our country continue to be um, 
strived for, stroven, strived for. Yeah, English is a liquid language. This gets tricky. And, and, and Peter's not writing about patriotism, but he is regularly talking about being an exile and a sojourner. It's in the first verse, and it's here in verse 17. And his full expectation, we'll, we'll see that this passage is full of many more expectations, promises, foundational theology things than it is commands. And his expectation is we would be humbled by our role as an exile, as a sojourner. And that would actually inform and humble us and allow us to be for the place that we are in. Jeremiah, the description of the exile is plant gardens, befriend, do your work. That's what exiles do. We do have a future home. Its place is secured for us in heaven. The inheritance is in heaven. It will collide here, and then it will be our full home. Until then, we're citizens of there, which means we're exiles here, which actually fills us with humility and love for the place that we are. And it's weird to be looking over your head to the camera, but that's what I'm going to do. And did you catch in verse 18 that Peter, I like to talk, well, hold on a second. I like to talk about the gospel as the love of God, because that's where it begins. Our sin, which is the need for Jesus to reconcile us. And then we have a role. Those are the, this is the three moves of the gospel that, that Peter alludes to more specifically in the States. And I love talking about the agency that we're called into. We're not simply called from, but we're called into. And there are some commands in this text that we'll look at a little bit. But our role is one that transcends our own time. And this is a very biblical idea. Much of the West is enslaved to platonic thought that thinks that sin is merely a lack of information. If we had all the information, we wouldn't sin. And it doesn't matter what happened in the past. It only matters what we're responsible for. And Peter would either drive right past that or ignore it because the message of the gospel, and especially our agency, transcends those things. Did you see it in verse 18? Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways, inherited from your forefathers, implication Our role as lovers of God and neighbor will have something to do with healing the hurts of the past. Our agency is bigger than our time. We know this with respect to the future. We long to build some kind of a legacy, hopefully, of love for God and neighbor. But a lot of us have energy for that. But we don't think, I think naturally, and this is is very Western and not in and of itself evil, but not big enough for Scripture, We don't think about the past. We have a role as followers of Jesus. And I think it's impossible without receiving and trusting the living and abiding word of God. Did you catch that in verse 23? It's the same word used earlier um, in the chapter. That it's a constantly alive and enlivening thing inside of us. That when we're given a new heart, It's the description of the new covenant by Jeremiah and Ezekiel that Jesus said he inaugurated. We're given a new heart. What is that new heart? It's the living and abiding word of God inside of us called the gospel and the Holy Spirit and Jesus. So this particular text is a a fascinating one biblically when we think of the question that we often want to know, what do we do? I've told this story before. The, the main professor who taught homiletics, which is preaching when I was in seminary, talked about his professor, Dr. Robert Rayburn, who would sit in the back of the room with his arms folded as the sermon was concluding. And after it was over, he'd say, but what do we do? 
And the reason that was so often what he said is the scriptures are not nearly as concerned with what we do as they are with us understanding the promises and the covenants and all that has been done, the promises of God. The covenants, especially with respect to how God has never broken them, though we do. And what he has done for us. Then, on the strength of that, we serve and we learn to worship and all the things that Christians do. But first, we note the power and the promises. The first song that we sang this morning in worship, I like and it troubles me. Why would we raise a hallelujah? Only in response to his loving pursuit of us. Our weapon is him. And having received him, then we sing in response. I love singing it. And yet, you could could hear one version on Spotify that would be like, that sounds like it's a little more about me. And then you hear Dan and Isabel sing it, and it's awesome, because they're like, this is not about me. This is not me-focused. It's Jesus-focused. I'm serious. You listen to the either version. You guys did great, by the way. Sounded amazing. You guys did great. So what do we do? Well, before we talk about what we do, if we're going to be students of the text, we have to look at all the promises. One of the commands in this text is to set our hope fully. The exiles are encouraged, they're not encouraged, they're commanded to set their hope fully. But what is so much more explicit in the text are all these command, are all these preceding promises, all these undergirding covenants, all these empowering truths. Did you see it in verse 13? Therefore, preparing your minds. Peter's assuming that that's naturally happening because the Holy Spirit is in them. By the way, the Greek for that is like girding up your garments. Like before the Bible. Uh, Greek text, not before the Old Testament, before the New Testament, Greek texts would use that to describe a boxer going into the ring, but like wearing a robe. So, you, you know, you gather up the robe before you box. Or someone who had to run before they would um, run, but they were wearing a robe, which may not make, pants are great, right? Um, that's, that's the description of this. Preparing your minds, I think, is a little, well, yeah, it's got, I got the footnote here. You have a footnote? Anyway. Peter's assuming that that's happening, and being sober-minded. The reason he's not saying be sober-minded, he's assuming that that happened, that we're sobered by the love of God in its pursuit of us. Then he says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be sought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you see that? It's so biblical from Genesis to Revelation that God comes and rescues us and calls us his own. Then commands, and then the command is, in this particular case, to focus our mind and heart and very being on his promises. Did you see it again in verse 18? Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your fathers. The promise precedes any encouragement, any religious practice, any move on our part, even any thought on our part. The promise comes before it. Did you see it in verse 22? Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. For sincere brotherly love. Then there's the command. Love one another. Did you see it in verse 23? Since you have been born again. Not of perishable seed. Referencing Genesis 3 when um, God talks about the seed of the woman eventually crushing the head of the serpent. That's a description of Jesus. This is Genesis 3.15. So the entire world is born into a world that is under the, uh, that is 
in the midst of the power and the presence of sin and death, unless the imperishable seed of the Holy Spirit comes in and gives the new heart and frees us into a life with the living and abiding Word of God. In response to these promises, of course our life is different. It's forever different. That's how it's news and not information. It's living and abiding news. A living argument that changes everything. There are all sorts of practices that we do in community and alone. There are all sorts of things that make us look like Christians, but Peter doesn't even demand he implies that the more important, the, the, the preceding and preeminent gospel is to trust and receive these things. And, and the reason that he writes about it is not only because he expects those, he, he, because the promises always precede the commands. The reason he writes this this way is he, he's the full expectation that we're interested in growing. Are you interested in growing? Are you interested in being more and more uh, consciously full of the Holy Spirit in how you worship and how you treat your neighbors and how you do your work and how, you're, how you live in your neighborhood? I wonder. Because I think sometimes we get a little defensive. Do you like email? I sometimes do. Last week, or, or uh, three weeks ago, I got an email and I wrote four drafts until I stopped drafting and picked up the phone. Has that ever happened to you? I think sometimes what happens often when we're looking at our phone or perhaps our Apple Watch, I don't know if they're that good. I had one for 12 days and a guy told me, this is not working for you, so I returned it. Perhaps in social media, perhaps we get texts. I didn't know that TikTok could ever be negative. Is that true? Like people can get mad, they see a TikTok and they get mad? Will Downey said it's true. You agree, Isabel? And there are only like six people in the room, so she might feel singled out. And I can't ask those guys at the sound booth. They don't know. No offense, fellas. I think sometimes throughout our week we get incredibly defensive. And what I want to point out is Peter would assume we're very interested in growth. He's going to give us some direct directives about growth in light of these promises of God. But I wonder... If when we got a text or when we got an email, what would happen in our spirit if we actually paused? And listen, I hate, I actually do not like preaching you this because it's going to happen this week and I'm going to be on vacation. So hopefully I won't even be checking email, but I'll get a text or something else and it will, (laughs) you know? But I wonder if we actually receive and trust and hear all the promises that Peter's talking about. If we could instead ask, Lord, is there growth for me here? And where is it? What it would be like as a neighbor in conversation from that text, from that social media post. Careful, it's social media, it's bonkers. I notice it in myself. And I wonder if there are opportunities for growth that I'm missing throughout the week. Exiles set their hope fully on him. Verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. This is part of the reason I chose 
First Peter, I think the, the urgency with which he writes to the elect exiles, to the sojourners, uh, is something that I think we can receive in this incredibly challenging COVID time. He was foreknown. This is where Christianity is, is uh, unique. This is where Jesus is unique. Jesus stated that he was both God and man. Peter is referencing that, that Jesus, did, Jesus was not created. He has always existed. He was foreknown. I don't know if you follow the Apostles' Creed. It talks about, we'll read it when we do our communion service, but it, it talks beautifully about the Father, beautifully about the Son, and then about the Holy Spirit. But then soon after that, uh, the Nicene Creed developed, and sometimes people use uh, the timing of the creeds to say that Christianity isn't evidentially accurate as a religion. But what they're forgetting is um, Christianity was illegal until the fourth century. Then it became legal, then it became illegal not to be a Christian. Very bad moment for Christianity. So these uh, councils start in the fourth century, not because Christians weren't interested in the questions, but because it was illegal to not say Caesar is Lord and to say Jesus is Lord. But here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, is one of the reasons the Nicene Creed exists. Because it didn't, the Apostles' Creed did not answer profoundly enough the things we need to understand about Jesus in order to worship him fully. And this is where our Jewish friends and our Islamic friends would call Jesus a heretic. They would say he's leading people away from God. Now, they like his, uh, Islamic people like his moral teachings and respect him, but... A man who claims that they're God is heretical. Now, why do I say that? What are we called to with our friends who are Jewish and Muslim? Love. Because we love neighbor and enemy. They're not our enemies in the, way, in the way Jesus was even talking. But it is important to notice this. It is important that our minds and hearts be formed by how God describes himself, which means grappling with the beautiful mystery partially understandable by us, of the Trinity. Exiles set their hope fully... Your screen didn't freeze. I just was finding myself in my notes. Exiles set their hope fully on him. Him who ransomed us from the futile ways of our... I'm going to need to buy a bigger Bible, aren't I? Bigger text. He who ransomed us from the futile ways inherited from our forefathers into believers for his glory who then gives us faith and hope moving down to verse 21. When we set our hope fully on him, when we consider with our mind and with our time of prayer corporately and individually, beginning with his promises, then moving into why did he come and pursue us? It was for you, for your sake. How beautiful is that? This was not written to us. This was written for us. How encouraging that Jesus became a human being in the last times, the beginning of the end times, not the last time, for your sake. I hope that encourages you. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. And then, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. 
I follow uh, a lot of people. Hmm, that's not what I meant to do. I was looking for verse 21. That's okay. I follow a lot of folks on Twitter, and again, be careful with the social medias, but some of the people I follow on Twitter are significantly more conser- conservative with respect to theology than I am. A number are considering more liberal than I am with respect to theology, and some of them don't think the resurrection matters. And we're not actually friends on Twitter because I'm just bad at the social medias. Um, but I, I can learn through them. And I see people talk about the lack of importance of the resurrection. And I look at First Peter 21 and I, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. If you're Jesus's and he is yours, the power for that came from his resurrection. Evidentially, and existentially, and supernaturally. The factual resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, proving that he was Jesus Christ, is how you received the Holy Spirit, the living and abiding Word of God. It's essential that we know that. I assume many of you know that. So be encouraged. If you knew the resurrection mattered already, like, great. But Peter wanted to remind you of it anyway for your encouragement and joy in him. So I'm talking about the promises of God. Exiles set their hope fully on Jesus, who teaches us to love. The commands in here, I noticed one when Rachel read the scripture in the nine o'clock service. It's so annoying to study a studying this passage for months. I translated it from the Greek. It's not a great translation. Use the ESV, please. And I noticed so many more promises than commands, but I missed the conduct yourselves with fear. But I noticed, set your hope fully, and love. Conducting ourselves with fear is important. And I see sometimes, and I've even done this, I think, sometimes pastors want us, um, in a very platonic way, we want to separate uh, fear from our experience of fear. And there's some wisdom in that, in terms of, like, I don't want, like, your fear of God is not like the fear of being in a car wreck. But, if you have limits, and you do, and there's one without limits, some appreciation and perception of that creates some fear in us. Not that we're shaking with fear, but fear that includes awe and mystery and an understanding of our finiteness and limits. So we conduct ourselves with fear until he returns and there will be no fear. He commands us to set our hope fully on him. We do that individually and corporately through all of the ways that we worship. And then he talks about love. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And this is super interesting that it's Peter that wrote this. Having purified your souls, so he's assumed that's already happened because you've received the Gospels, for a sincere brotherly love, phileo, you know, like Philadelphia, like city of brotherly love. This is love between friends. This is friend love. Love one another, agape, earnestly from a pure heart. A Greek person would never think this is possible unless they're a follower of God. This is the word used for love of God, not for love of friends. And if you're familiar with Jesus and Peter after the resurrection, you know that they had a a long, loving, restorative discussion. And this word, these two words are the ones that go back and forth. And now here's Peter encouraging the people that, why did God pursue you? 
elect exile. Why did he call you to himself? And, he, and Peter's alluding to it, not explaining it, so I'm going to summarize it because I want to. The gospel is that God loves you because he is God and you are you. And sin was separating you. And as the Holy Spirit pursued you, the work of Christ reconciled you back to God and has called you into agency. So God saved you because he is God. But what did he save you for? Love. And this is where the sermon gets really practical. And I hope that you see the interconnectedness, interconnectedness of the good news of Jesus Christ here. So in, your form, in the passions of your former ignorance, the word passion is over-desire, epithumia. So you over-want something, and you want it to deliver, and God rescues you from that. And not only gives you himself, which is the sweetest thing for your heart, but rescues you into those other things. I'm not sure you, many of you know where I'm going. Very smart humans. How did you think about your career before you entered your career? Isabel, you're going to be in 10th grade next year? 11th? 11th. So if you could talk to yourself before high school, like you would have a lot to tell yourself, right? Your expectation was different. I asked my daughter, who's, who finished 7th grade this year, was 7th grade anything like you expected? And she said no, and then a lot more words. Those of you that are married, how much does marriage look like what you thought it would look like? Those of you with children, I mean, is it anything like you thought it would be? Those of you that are single, is it anything like you thought it would be? And some of your former ignorance is simply ignorance, but some of your former ignorance and mine is based upon an idol, is based upon an over-desire. And what Jesus Christ does is, he comes in and settles our heart because he is the only one that can do it. He helps us set the idol down, put himself in its plate, and then he place, and then he guides us into real lives. So if you wanted your job to be certain fulfilling, and it's not, because it's a job, though it still has nobility and is good, no job is just a job, FYI. What's happening there is you are being reconformed to the gospel of Christ. You're being freed from your former ignorance, being driven away from over-desires into receiving the life of life that comes through union with Christ and in being given those things back, which means your career can still give you some amount of joy, which means that 11th grade doesn't have to be horrible, which means that 8th grade doesn't have to be horrible, which means that your marriage may never look anything like what you thought, and that could be an incredible grace in your life. It means that though having kids didn't look like what you thought it would look like, or being single didn't look like what you thought it would look like, the living and abiding word of God will already has and will continue to settle your heart and to guide you into a life of life, first in union with Christ, then freed back into those mundane and good and almost sacramental gifts in this life. That's why this is such profound news. Frees us from the passions of our former ignorance into, going, I'm moving from verse 14 into verse 23, 
into a life guided by the living and abiding word of God. The sermon may not seem practical in the moment, and yet it is the most practical news there is because it's true. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we praise you for coming after us in love. We praise you for the living and abiding word of God that calls us into lives of life. Amen.